Hi, and welcome to Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm your host, Karen Stanbridge, and today I'll be talking with scholars whose work appears in the August 2021 issue of the journal. Sociologists have always been concerned with inequality. Why do some people and groups do better in life than others? And what are the implications of these unequal outcomes for the people living them and for societies? Each of my three guests explores these themes in different ways. Neil Guppy and his co-author, Alex Chow, wanted to see whether expansion of Canada's education system over the past century has diminished the effect of class background on people's social mobility. We'll hear what they found. And do people's judgments of inequality in their country change during periods of economic downturn? Edward Haddon took a look at the data from several countries, and it revealed some surprising results. But first, we explore the extent to which the wealthy 1% in Canada shape national conversations around the environment and the climate crisis. So let's get started. First, the good news. It seems the environment and the climate crisis are finally getting the attention they should. The bad news? The messages and recommendations around climate change and what to do about it are varied and often conflicting. Whose understanding and solutions are getting the most airtime? My next guest wanted to find out. I'm uh, Bill Carroll, and I'm a professor of sociology uh, at the University of Victoria. I've done a lot of research in the political economy of corporate capitalism, but I became very interested in social movements as well. So that's been a complementary research interest sort of looking at social movements and particularly their contributions to um, hegemonic struggles. Dr. Carroll and his colleagues, Nicholas Graham and Mark Shakespeare, have an article in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's entitled Mapping the Environmental Field, Networks of Foundations, Engos, and Think Tanks. It's uh, really part of the output from what we call the Corporate Mapping Project. Uh, What we've been doing over the past six to seven years really has been to try to map out various aspects of corporate power, focusing on fossil capital, on the fossil fuel sector and sectors that are closely linked to it, looking at a range of modalities, if you like, of corporate power and how all of this sustains popular support for fossil capitalism. So it's a fairly wide-ranging project. So this article is part of this larger initiative. Here, Dr. Carroll distinguishes the three groups on which the team focused in their research, foundations, engos, and think tanks. They're all, broadly speaking, civil society organizations. So formally, they're separate from the state, but they're often in various ways, linked into state projects. Um, you know, in that sense, they they often function as agencies of political legitimation, but potentially as agencies of change and transformation. So we're looking at three particular kinds of organizations and the network of funding that uh, links them together. So we have the foundations themselves, which are private institutions that mobilize funds for philanthropic causes, uh, including environmental causes. NGOs, uh, environmental NGOs, are are nonprofits that focus their efforts on environmental issues and 
And then we have as a third kind of organization in our study, uh, think tanks that produce and mobilize knowledge that feeds into public policy or feeds into popular discourse through news media, that kind of thing, and in that way influences political consciousness and practice. In mapping the links between the many organizations belonging to these three groupings, Dr. Carroll and his colleagues sought to address some specific questions. We really explored three research questions in this particular article. So the first one, we were interested in what we call selective channeling of resources toward one wing of environmental politics as opposed to another wing. And in that way, really um, influencing the, the shape and form of that aspect of social movement politics. And similarly with policy planning, you know, we can talk about selective channeling of resources through the foundations to certain kinds of think tanks. Secondly, we asked you know, whether the pattern of funding relations points toward distinct communities of environmental politics and policy planning. For example, do certain foundations support traditional conservationist kinds of NGOs, like Ducks Unlimited, say, while others support more uh, social ecological NGOs, uh, such as, say, David Suzuki Foundation. And then thirdly, whether within this field of the foundations, the NGOs, and the policy planning think tanks, where can we find the clean growth NGOs? How are they positioned in that broader field as really proponents of a of a business-friendly approach to uh, the climate crisis. What kind of data do you draw on for a study like this? Dr. Carroll explains their process. This study was based on uh, publicly available information. And in particular, we obtained data on charitable grants from foundations in Canada. And then looking through that database, we identified the major gifts of um, $50,000 or more that were made to ENGOs and think tanks by the foundations. Then we classified the ENGOs in terms of their self-descriptions on their websites, basically, into uh, conservationist, social ecological, and clean growth uh, ENGOs. And there are some ENGOs that are basically hubs. So they, they receive funding and then distribute the funds to other ENGOs in the environmental sector. And then from those data, which are relational data, looking at how much money is flowing from a particular foundation to a particular ENGO or think tank in 2017, we constructed a, uh, the network of the flow of funds. It's very much a, a kind of structural study, really just looking at the question of, of financing ENGOs and think tanks and how foundations are implicated really as, as, as important uh, sources of funds. So where did the money go? Which environmental groups and think tanks received the most funding? Did foundations favor organizations that were more or less conservative in their approach to the environment? Dr. Carroll relays their results. So the first question was about funding selectivities. And in terms of the pattern of funding selectivities, you know, which groups really get the money, a key finding is that most of the supported ENGOs are conservationist. And in financial terms, they really dominate the field and receive the lion's share of both small gifts and also giant donations. We also find 
channeling in the sense that most of the money flows to conservative think tanks. So that in terms of selectivity, um, there's a really clear kind of channeling of uh, funds to the more conservative wing of environmentalism and of uh, policy planning. Then we had this question of you know, whether we could discern communities of foundations funding the same engos and the same think tanks you know, as clusters within the network. And we did find a structural division between, um, on the one hand, the predominantly corporate and conservative family foundations that support right-wing think tanks and clean growth engos and conservationist engos. And on the other hand, a segment of the network uh, in which a different set of foundations support more social ecological angles. And so, I mean, you know, that's a kind of optimistic note that, that the social ecological angles have been able to carve out a space in the field of major environmental donorship, even though channeling effects are a pervasive avenue of elite influence the overall pattern doesn't foreclose possibilities for ENGOs to take up more transformative initiatives and receive some funding for that. As a third finding, when we looked specifically at the clean growth organizations, and there's only a handful of them, but they're really well-funded, because these are actually quite new organizations that proposes to solve the climate crisis by making certain tweaks to our uh, capitalist economy, but without really rethinking any of the basic arrangements. And so the clean growth organizations, they don't cluster along with the conservative think tanks, but they do receive major funding from corporate foundations that are deeply invested in Canada's tar sands. There were just nine of these clean growth engos in 2017 And these nine received about a tenth of all the funding to all of of the environmental sector. And of course, clean growth is a prominent policy goal of the federal government. And this project really exemplifies a reformist as opposed to a transformative approach to change. It's very business friendly. It aspires to meet Canada's international climate commitments in a manner that promotes profitability and the concentration of economic power in the hands of a relatively small group of major investors, executives, and corporate directors. These are disheartening outcomes for activists promoting more thoroughgoing change in response to the climate crisis. But as Dr. Carroll reminds us, there are bright spots. The foundations are channeling funds, and these funds are skimmed from the capital accumulation process in various ways and they're channeling them into initiatives that are generally in line with dominant class interests. And that's the conservation and clean growth part of the story. But there is space in that funding network for more progressive environmental work. So for activists concerned with climate justice, the struggle for resources is not hopeless. It's an uphill struggle, but there are real possibilities for getting that kind of support Mapping the environmental field, networks of foundations, engos, and think tanks by Bill Carroll, Nicholas Graham, and Mark Shakespeare is in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. One hundred years ago in Canada, the link between your family background and where you'd end up in life was strong. If you were born poor, it was likely you'd stay poor. 
But since then, things have changed. Many more Canadians are pursuing and completing higher learning and doing better in life than a century ago. In other words, the link between social class and educational and social mobility has been broken. Or has it? My name is Neil Guppy. I'm a retired professor from the University of British Columbia in the Department of Sociology. My interests generally are in the areas of social inequality. Within that, I'm very interested in issues of higher education in particular. I've always been curious as to uh, the factors that explain why some people are able to get to university to begin with and then be able to go through uh, higher education in a very successful way and launch really good careers subsequent to that. And others who don't choose perhaps to go on to um, higher education or aren't able to get into uh, college or university of, of their choice, what those factors are, what it is that explains uh, those differences between people. Dr. Guppy and his colleague, Alex Chow, have an article in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled Intergenerational Educational Mobility Over the Past Century in Canada. It was their common interest in the factors that contribute to social inequality that led to their collaboration on this research. Alex was an undergraduate at uh, UBC when we did this work. And one of the things we were both interested in was what's the, the linkage between your family background and your own personal success? Lots of people, myself included when I was young, used to think that any successes I had were due to my own efforts and any failures I had were just bad luck. I, I've come to realize that uh, the context in which people navigate their lives have a very major impact on their abilities to be able to, for example, move up a hierarchy of uh, social inequality. Um, for Alex and I, it was really looking at that linkage between your origins and your destination. Guppy and Chow wanted to see whether and how this linkage has changed over the past 100 years. One way to do this is to measure educational mobility. Are disadvantaged people as likely or more likely than their parents to complete higher education? Yeah, so our, our first research question really comes down to the, the issue of the correlation between the level of education your parents have and the level of education that you have. Then as you start to unpack that a little bit, one of the questions becomes, well, gosh, does your mother's education have more influence than your father's education or are they one and the same? Is it really kind of a combination of your family's education? And then coupled with that is, does this patterning hold the same for men and for women? So the big question is this link between origin and destination. And then subsequent to that is see whether there are any patterns in terms of who's parental education and whether it's looking at a male or a female child. To measure such long-term changes in educational and social mobility is a challenge, as Dr. Guppy explains. One of the reasons that social mobility has not been studied so much recently by sociologists is it's a fairly costly endeavor to get together a national sample of uh, individuals and ask them a set of questions about their origins and their destinations. So what Alex and I did was to put together some surveys that had been done by Statistics Canada. 
So StatsCan has something called the General Social Survey. Every year they do a general social survey. And every fifth year, they have a set of questions on there that really focus on some details about parents and some details about respondents. So what we did is we took um, surveys from five different years and merged these into one large data set that gave us many, many observations. And then we took the survey respondents and divided them on the basis of their uh, year of birth. So we divided them into birth cohorts. So that's what allowed us to be able to look, in essence, over the last century, people that were born in the early 1900s up to people that were born in the late 1900s and look at the link between how far their parents had gone in school and how far they themselves uh, had gone in school. So briefly, that's the outline of the kind of data that we used. It is a national sample that's representative of Canadians who were born between early 1900s and late 1900s. A hundred years ago is a long time ago. Surely as a country, Canada has developed such that people's success in life has less to do with their socioeconomic background than a century ago. Well, brace yourself for some unfortunate news. So certainly the kind of headline result, you might summarize it as saying that there's a stickiness to the link between origin and destination. One of the key findings is if you looked at that linkage for 1920 and then for 1950 and then for 1990, you'd find that the linkage was exactly the same over those periods of time. So it turns out from our research that's supported by prior research in this area and by the research that the economists have been doing, that really there's been very little change over time in how that link between your origin and destination has changed. So when I say this, the sense of stuck in place, if you're born as a have more uh, to a family that has more, you're very likely to um, have more and be advantaged yourself. And that has not changed over time. At the other end of that continuum, if you're born in poverty or born in a have less situation, your chances of being able to rise up the social hierarchy are as limited now as they were 50, 80 years ago. The other messages I think that we would emphasize is there's not much difference between men and women in how this linkage occurs. So the, the stickiness is the same for men as it is uh, for women. And the other, the question around whether mother's education or father's education matters more and whether it matters more or less for men or women, there's not much of an effect there that we found over time. There are some little differences, but nothing major that we found there. So the headline message is the kind of stickiness of the origin destination linkage. So if it's still the case that class background is strongly linked to whether people enter and complete higher education and improve their chances to be upwardly mobile, what, if anything, should be done about it? I think both Alex and I are progressives in the sense that we would like to see a, a fairer and more just society. The, the findings from this paper really undermine that. So there is a kind of pessimistic view that, gosh, we've gone through a lot of change, major world wars, a variety of events that have taken place over the last century. 
but really, gosh, that linkage between parent and child education hasn't changed. So how do we intervene? How do we change that? So one of the things that we found in our study was the transition from high school to college or university was much more difficult for people that came from more economically challenged backgrounds. And one of the ways perhaps to change that would be to invest in early childhood education and try to work hard to ensure that as people come into the school system, they're coming into it with what you might call a quality of condition so that their ability to be successful in education is about the same. A second possibility has to do with kind of summer learning programs and um, related kind of educational enrichment opportunities, Head Start types of programs that say, gee, maybe we could reform our school system a little so that everybody had similar opportunities in the summer. And finally, this is more controversial. I mean, another outcome, we know that education matters. So gosh, maybe we should force people to stay in school for longer periods of time. So rather than having age 16 as the time when people could leave school, get people to stay in perhaps to age 18. And here there's some research that suggests that that actually has occurred in a couple of states in the United States and has had some uh, positive effect. Read Intergenerational Educational Mobility Over the Past Century in Canada by Neil Guppy and Alex Chow in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. How do you feel about inequality in your country? Do you think it's fair or unjust? Or do you think about it at all? My next guest would likely be interested in your answer. Yeah, so my name is Edward Haddon. I'm a Shirk postdoctoral fellow at the University of Victoria and also a lecturer with the Labor Studies program at Simon Fraser University. My uh, research is in the areas of class structure and income inequality, political sociology, and social theory. Dr. Haddon studies how people's attitudes towards inequality intersect with class. He has an article in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled Class, Partisanship, and the Great Recession, the Conflicting Influences on Attitudes Towards Inequality During Economic Crises. Here, he describes what inspired him to undertake this research. So the article that I published in CRS comprises a portion of my PhD dissertation research, which really traces how social class shapes inequality attitudes cross nationally and over time. But what I noticed while reading the literature on attitudes towards uh, income inequality, particularly during periods of economic crisis, was that there were sort of two camps. So some scholars suggested that public opinions towards inequality were largely unresponsive to economic conditions, while there were others who suggested that individuals may respond differently to changing economic conditions depending on their extent of exposure to economic insecurity. I've found that an individual's social class position affects how they view inequality. So, you know, working classes hold more critical attitudes towards income inequality. Well, the opposite is true for more upper classes. But I also found that this relationship varies depending on one's political persuasion. Now, of course, this makes sense because uh, dissatisfaction with income inequality is typically what we would think of as a sort of a political left-right issue. 
So people politically on the right, for instance, tend to be uh, less critical of inequality, whereas those who affiliate politically with the left tend to be more critical of inequality. So in the article, I suggest uh, that it's important to look at this interplay between class and partisanship to really better understand individual views towards income inequality, particularly during times of uh, economic crisis. In this article, Haddon was concerned with attitudes during the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, and how these differed or may have changed from people's pre-recession views. I guess I asked a couple of substantive research questions. So I asked what motivates individuals to think critically about inequality following a major economic shock. And I also explore whether critical views towards income inequality are different across social class and party affiliation and how this relationship is shaped by the Great Recession. Dr. Haddon mobilized data that was broad both geographically and historically. To help answer these questions, I used data collected by an organization called the International Social Survey Program, particularly the data sets before and during the Great Recession, so in 1992, 1999, and in 2009. So the data for the 1992 survey was available for 18 countries. Data for the 1999 uh, survey was available for 24 countries. And for 2009, data was available uh, for all countries, unfortunately, except Canada, because this was due to low response rates. So to gauge the public opinions towards inequality, I used responses to a question which asks respondents the extent to which they agree or disagree with the differences in their particular country's income distribution are too large. And I measured one's social class position using what's called the European socioeconomic classification. And then so because attitudes towards inequality, my dependent variable was an ordinal measure, I employed uh, ordered logistic regression. And because the relationship between class, political persuasions, and inequality views may operate differently during a recession, I needed to account for this statistically. So I included what was called a three-way interaction between social class, party affiliation, and survey year. Dr. Haddon's analysis of how people's views of inequality intersect with class and political party affiliation during times of economic crisis revealed some surprising results. The first a key result, I think, that I found is that over a number of countries, uh, the Great Recession did not actually raise critical awareness of inequality of the working, middle, and upper classes. Next, I found that in response to the Great Recession, inequality views actually came together across class lines. In particular, the working class differed less from the upper class. So a final key finding is that following the Great Recession, My research shows that political orientation is more important in shaping inequality views for the upper class than it is for the working class. And the findings here indicate that party affiliation matters little in determining views towards inequality of the working class, even during times of crisis. What I suggest overall is that at the heights of the Great Recession, party affiliation was actually not a driving force behind working class concerns over income inequality. Now, for the working class, then, shocks can be said to cut across party lines. In comparison, party affiliation appeared to play a greater role in shaping inequality views among the elites. 
So it's in the more advantaged classes that we see political differences emerge in that specifically these are more pronounced in the middle classes and even greater still in the upper classes. Indeed, what I found, uh, which was quite surprising to me, is that in times of economic crisis, working class leftists were less critical of inequality than left-leaning elites. So public opinion scholars take note. Dr. Haddon's research suggests we need to be cautious when determining what combinations of factors affects people's views of inequality in their country. The findings from this study are important for those scholars particularly interested in studying public opinions towards inequality, of course. Scholars studying public opinions towards inequality have typically focused on uh, political polarization and suggested that public opinion responses are largely, if not solely, connected to politics. So research suggests that individuals move in the conservative direction in response to economic threats in terms of their opinions toward income inequality and redistribution. I think the real import of this research is that it contributes to a different theoretical and analytical approach going forward in the literature on perceptions of inequality. So I think it's important to look at, rather than focusing on single sources of influence, for instance, those economic interests connected to social class or political ideology, or maintaining that one influences the other, I think the two aspects must be thought as having very impacts on perceptions of inequality over time. Edward Haddon's article, Class, Partisanship, and the Great Recession, The Conflicting Influences on Attitudes Towards Inequality During Economic Crises, is in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And we've come to the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Stay tuned for more sociological studies and insights in future programs. I'm Karen Stanbridge. Thank you.